Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast. Today, we're visiting one of the leading minds in geometric methods, computer vision and robotic perception at the University of Pennsylvania, Professor Kostas Danielidis. His research has focused on many aspects of perception of motion and space, and he develops solutions to perceptual tasks such as panoramic vision, perception of self-motion, large-scale mapping, and 3D object recognition. Currently, he's based at the GRASP lab, which is devoted to advancing innovations in robotics that result in new products and services. He spoke to our interviewer Jack about his work designing systems that allow robots to recognize and grasp a range of different objects and the practical challenges in implementing these systems in real-world settings. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, I'm uh, Kostas uh, Danielidis. I am a professor of uh, computer information science uh, at the University of Pennsylvania and I work at the GRASP laboratory, one of the top robotics laboratories in the, in the world. Very nice. Um, so uh, your work spans a lot of different fields, uh, grounded in geometric methods and computer vision. Could you describe what you're working on these days? Uh, right. Uh, Uh, my passion has been uh, to always uh, to extract uh, 3D from uh, two-dimensional data, like uh, single images or uh, video. I have been working uh, since 1990 when I published my first paper on uh, uh, the error analysis of 3D motion estimation. And since then, uh, I have addressed uh, all problems, how to estimate your own 3D motion as a robot, how to estimate uh, the three-dimensional pose of objects, if you want to grasp them, uh, how you do a 3D map of the environment, and uh, how do you estimate the uh, shape of objects and even uh, uh, humans. Mm. So some of your uh, most recent research has been on, uh, as you said, uh, given a 2D image uh, of an object to uh, find out where that object is in 3D relative to, uh, to the camera. Right. This is a very interesting uh, problem. Uh, uh, first, uh, because uh, uh, we want to, to know where objects are to detect them in the environment. But then when we want to, to interact with these objects, uh, then uh, we really need to know their six-dimensional uh, pose both rotation and translation, and uh, their shape, because uh, we might uh, not have seen this object. Mm. So we're detecting the objects, if you know somehow the class of objects uh, can be done these days uh, with uh, classification, with uh, deep learning, mm -hmm. and uh, estimating the 3D pose and uh, shape is uh, a much more uh, recent area. And the way we address it is not by using a depth sensor to get the shape right. and the pose, 
not by using multiple views, but by using really the information about uh, the category of the object. So if we want to grasp a specific drill, we know from many examples how approximately drills look like, and still we can detect a new drill, and we can uh, interpolate the shape of the new drill just based on previous examples. Mm -hmm. The challenge there is uh, really to find some uh, anchor points or the silhouette of the object so that you can really relate uh, colors, the appearance of the objects, with whatever you have in your databases, 3D models that may be CAD models or uh, uh, data you have uh, acquired with the Kinect sensor, for example. Mm -hmm. So this is really the main uh, challenge uh, to match the three-dimensional information, some, something like a point cloud you have in your database, and uh, uh, the color information, which might be key points or edges. And uh, the two objects separately... Uh, there are many approaches. So if you have like point clouds in the CAD model database, somehow you can estimate the shape of the new object in the pose. If you have only 2D images and, then, uh, and 2D objects, then somehow you can find their scaling and rotation in the image. But uh, connecting the two during, both during learning and uh, during like testing, during real-time testing is challenging. Right. Um, so you mentioned grasping is a potential uh, application of, of pose estimation. Uh, you also uh, apply this to uh, human pose estimation, both for objects and humans. What are the other potential applications? So for uh, uh, three-dimensional uh, pose, uh, as you said, uh, uh, human is uh, an human is uh, really a very challenging uh, application, also very useful. Uh, we can uh, use it in uh, science, in uh, like kinesiology, to study motion models and the mechanics, not only of humans, but also of animals. We have another project uh, where we observe uh, birds mm -hmm. and uh, their uh, posture and their flying. Uh, for uh, We can uh, really study very fast motions of, uh, in sports. Yeah. But uh, for the 3D uh, pose of objects, uh, even like the pose of other cars with respect to you in a scene, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, very important, as well as in uh, many interactive uh, applications. I can imagine like uh, that uh, uh, there is a combination of Photoshop and AutoCAD where uh, somebody gives you a picture and out of the picture directly you can get a 3D model and rotate it and modify this picture. Mm, so right. this is what we call an image uh, pop-up. And then that was, a, that was a recent paper? If you're that was a recent paper uh, at uh, ICCV 2015, yeah. Wow, wow that's interesting. Um, so how, how are these systems implemented? Like, uh, especially when you're, when you're estimating simultaneously the variations in shape of, these, of the objects and where they are, it seems like you'd have to have one before you could do the other. That's true, like a chicken uh, and egg problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, 
Methods have changed dramatically in the last uh, two, three years because of the introduction of uh, deep learning architectures, which really Mm -hmm. uh, revolutionized not only classifications, classification tasks, but uh, many other uh, uh, tasks like segmentation, uh, detection, uh, localization of objects in images, and now even 3D geometry. at the beginning, uh, I can tell you, 30 years ago, somebody w- would use something like what we call a toy world. You would have a specific instances of objects. You would identify edges and corners. You would try to find correspondences between these edges and corners to specific objects in the world, and uh, then find the 3D position using something that is called like the perspective uh, endpoint problem. Mm -hmm. which was uh, known from photogrammetry. Uh, Now, we are dealing with uh, unknown instances of objects and uh, they're much more complicated illumination, so really identifying the anchor points like the landmarks or key points in the object which correspond to cell and 3D information uh, is something uh, that uh, we do by training with these points. In the case of humans, the po- these points are really very easily identifiable. These are like the 17 uh, joints of the human body. Yeah. And uh, you can uh, really train a network where the input is an image and the output are 17 channels, each of them with one joint. And for the objects, uh, we define joints by hand, by manual notation. Mm-hmm. And this is really, I think, a bottleneck in our research, and we really have to change. Right. Uh, the way, one of the ways uh, to change it uh, is really to introduce uh, some, uh, people call it like self-supervision or uh, hmm. robot-assisted uh, supervision, yeah. where somebody does not go by hand and annotate stuff, but uh, you could possibly try to grasp points and uh, uh, then uh, grasp specific points and uh, during grasping define salient points of an object. Mm. Uh, so other, uh, there are other cases where uh, uh, people are training uh, objects during just general grasping. This is the one paper by CMU, the paper with uh, the 46, uh, if I remember correctly, manipulators from uh, Google where you build uh, intermediate representations and some of these representations have indeed salient 3D information which you could use to characterize uh, 2D images and somehow then map them to three-dimensional objects. When you say intermediate representations? An intermediate representation is uh, something where you're giving an image and uh, uh, you are getting like a few key points on the image mm-hmm. detected. Okay, right. Still, still in 2D. Right. And uh, from these 2D images, then uh, we have to select, to have a selection mechanism, which of them are really uh, correspond to a 3D uh, point we know on the CAD uh-huh. model. Uh-huh. And then uh, we run uh, what is called uh, a sparse uh, combination of CAD models. Sparse combination means that you are really from a database of thousands of models, you need only the nearest neighbors mm-hmm. as a linear combination. 
and uh, this uh, gives you at the end simultaneously uh, both the pose and the 3D shape of the object. So what you're saying is that uh, you have a large database of different instances of the same class of object. Right. A bunch of different drills that sort of look similar mm -hmm. and you sort of find um, what are the most representative, uh, representative instances of like how drill shapes can be different. Some might have a much longer handle, some might... Right. Uh, usually we even have a, a much larger databases like for cars. Mm -hmm. We have uh, databases for all possible like uh, cars and uh, like sedans and SUVs, etc., etc. And then uh, we selected just among them very few like sedan cars if we are given, let's say, the image of a Camry. Mm -hmm. And this selection is done automatically with uh, a sparsity constraint. This is a mathematical uh, optimization where you try to minimize the number of coefficients in a linear combination. Mm -hmm. And we have published a paper uh, that is uh, with this method. It's called uh, sparseness meets uh, deepness, which is really the sparse optimization for shape meets the uh, deep uh, the results of the deep architecture for the land for the landmarks for the key points. Mm -hmm. Right. So you sort of, you're not uh, overcomplicating the parameter space of what the... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, this is, uh, we try to not overcomplicate uh, the parameter space of the shape and to do it more explicitly. Now mm -hmm. we have a more recent papers, uh, which is running uh, uh, now only for humans, and we'll try also on objects, where uh, we uh, have trained the network to learn end-to-end uh, given an image to learn the three-dimensional pose and shape hmm. and uh, without this intermediate step of 2D points and it seems that it's giving better results right. than uh, the uh, two-step approach. So once you can uh, directly uh, detect the 3D pose of these key points rather than going from 2D to 3D, what's the uh, motivation to do that and what are the advantages? So, I mean, detecting the 3D uh, joints of a human is already what we want as a final outcome. Yeah. And uh, usually when we get the 3D uh, position of uh, points of the object, then we already pretty much have uh, constrained uh, the shape mm -hmm. of the three-dimensional objects, and uh, then computing the pose is just a straightforward transformation. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There are other approaches which uh, have also directly the pose as uh, uh, as an outcome, as a regression variable, mm. where uh, you have a, like a fully connected layer or multiple fully connected layers, and you get at the end just uh, three parameters for translations and three parameters for, for rotation. Uh, many of uh, many approaches in general, which are end to end in 3D and uh, they need to estimate uh, pose or even like detect whether there is an object uh, they struggle uh, with uh, the three-dimensional rotations and uh, uh, these networks have really to be trained in many many with many many poses okay okay that's not a big problem because we can produce these poses artificially in 3D if we want mm -hmm. uh, by rotating the object uh, like virtually but uh, scientifically we would like to understand how to build a network that will be like uh, rotation invariant mm -hmm.
Interesting. Um, so you were discussing that one of the uh, potential applications is to uh, grasping. Right. Uh, so this is still something like a classic approach, uh, although we use uh, deep learning uh, end-to-end, uh, it's still uh, giving us at the end uh, a 3D model and its pose, right. and we have to decide where to grasp. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is software to do that, like grasp it. Which is a simulator. It, if you have a 3D model, you right. could just sort of uh, estimate uh, roughly where a grasp will be successful. Yeah, or you can pre-compute such positions and then apply them to objects. But you need to have that 3D model. You need to have the 3D model. Uh, so this is not uh, really the way to go in long term in the future yeah. and there are already groups uh, working uh, more uh, uh, first in uh, directly recognizing where to grasp mm-hmm. but uh, also uh, not having as a target function in the learning where to grasp but uh, just a good grasp or bad grasp meaning I have grasped and the object has fallen down, or uh, I have grasped and the grasp is very stable, like the object is not moving mm-hmm. in the hand. Right. So this uh, can be just, uh, uh, you can have as an input an image, you can have as an output uh, the grasp pose, and you can train it uh, basically on positive examples, like as a generative model, or you can have uh, input uh, image and motions, and you can have as an output uh, grasp positive, grasp negative, mm-hmm. bad grasp, and you can train it. And uh, obviously you need uh, hours and hours in order to do that, mm-hmm. or for robot operation, like in the grasp paper. Uh, but I think uh, uh, this is uh, a really self-supervised approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you don't need any manual uh, labeling mm-hmm. or anything like uh, building correspondences between several CAD models, yeah. the way we do it now for objects. And, uh, so you're saying the, the unsupervised uh, learning approach? Yeah, is the unsupervised learning approach. Mm-hmm. We just have uh, robots around them for thousands of hours and uh, we just let them grasp many objects yeah and uh, I think the key idea behind uh, there is uh, that uh, again you have some compression of the object Mm -hmm. inside the network and this compression of the object and as a matter of fact if you see these representations many times they have like salient 2D points okay Uh, and these salient 2D points are somehow correlated with your uh, motion with uh, your joint position and velocities Mm. and you find which of these correlations are good and which correlations are bad Mm. Uh, and I think uh, that's really the way to go the main point there is not for uh, every new object class to really have to run a robot for a week right okay or to run seven robots for a week the key point there is really whether you can uh, just uh, keep the like the model and refine it or whether uh, you can really transfer the model to some other situation mm-hmm. 
but definitely uh, if you are, uh, let's say, uh, you are in a factory where all the parts are auto, uh, automobile parts and you have to grasp them, yeah. and then you go to a supermarket where you have to grasp uh, products that uh, you don't have to retrain it completely. Right. Although at the same time, um, with the current state of, of, uh, of artificial intelligence and, and deep learning, uh, current approaches to unsupervised learning for grasping, you don't get that sort of higher level uh, inference about, about how to transfer. You're just sort of learning this broad, like, uh, you're just learning it based on like the geometry of the object, right? So this is in some ways your, your approach. Right, uh, exactly. Uh, we still, even with our approach where we split uh, the problem and somehow we understand it better, I think uh, in detecting point, the 2D points, we sh- would still have uh, separate training like for products in the supermarket and mm-hmm. separate training for uh, parts in an automobile factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the shape inference will be exactly the same, just uh, some uh, different CAD models in each case. Uh-huh. Uh, the grasping would be much, much trickier in our case uh, with uh, having to extract every time a separate 3D model and it would really depend on the variation. I think it would be trivial for products where everything is like uh, in packages. Yeah. And would be much more complicated on like uh, uh, lifting a tool or let's say even uh, like uh, taking uh, a whole uh, body part of a car mm-hmm. and uh, trying to move it somewhere. These are really very challenging uh, situations. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this is the general trend of artificial intelligence and robotics. I think is uh, first uh, how to train things by doing things and not by labeling. Yeah. This is one. Uh, and uh, second uh, is that uh, not train a separate network for every separate situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think right now we really have uh, just many, many networks for many situations like separate network, for example, to detect where is the lane while driving, separate network to detect the pedestrians. Yeah. And uh, I think these uh, have to be somehow unified. And so you mentioned um, that you would like in the future for for uh, object post-detection to be uh, more robust to different classes, not to retrain for different classes. Uh, is that a research direction that you intend to pursue? I think uh, for object detection, for the sake of uh, grasping, I think definitely we should uh, be uh, blind uh, it will be more blind to the semantics and really non-blind to the data set we are using for the actual robot that is grasping it will really depend what we will present to the robot if we present small model cars and drills it will learn all of them together without Mm. separating the way we do now a separate model for the drills, a separate model for the cars, because we need manual characterization of the key points, which yeah. is separating the drills and separating the cars. Right. Right. I mean, that would be an entirely different... I mean, the, the, the systems wouldn't share very much in common at that point. It seems like you'd have to... But if we, uh, if, uh, we just let uh, the robot uh, work for hours and try to learn mm-hmm. how to lift, uh, like, toy cars and... Uh, right. 
uh, hold the drill. As Learning the more principles behind uh, behind. Uh, and probably would learn only drills and toy cars and nothing else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, definitely, that's the the semantic definition would be through what the robot has learned to to grasp. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. And their shape. If there are other things that are, look like toy cars, the robot would be able to grasp them as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned a bit the practical challenges of implementing these systems. Um, what directions are you heading in right now to put uh, these sorts of post-detection systems in the real world? That's uh, great, and uh, this uh, question is uh, easy to answer uh, in 2016. Uh, ten years ago, there were really very, very few systems that uh, uh, somebody would read about in a newspaper or like a, the person in the street would know about. Mm-hmm. Right now, everybody knows about driverless cars, which use uh, everything that we have talked about, 3D motion and uh, uh, detection of humans and uh, basically all parts of uh, robot perception. Right. Delivery drones too, it's sort of like the, the age of robotics Delivery now. drones. And uh, we do, uh, here in the GRASP laboratory, uh, we try to also launch uh, uh, a spin-off companies, mm-hmm. which would, uh, I think the time is uh, mature that uh, some of these things come to the market. Uh, the one spin-off uh, that uh, I have co-founded together with my student uh, Jonas Cleveland is uh, COSI Robotics, and uh, this is about uh, mapping uh, retail spaces and uh, establishing uh, a mapping of all the products in the retail space, right. uh, what is called a planogram. Uh, this uh, includes uh, both uh, uh, robot uh, uh, mapping mm-hmm. and uh, so building the map of the store and uh, very fine-grained uh, recognition of uh, product categories. Right. And even uh, more challenging things which we are learning that are extremely important for uh, bigger uh, like uh, suppliers, uh, bigger retail stores uh, like the fresh food uh, at what situation is the fresh food on the shelves? Ah, mm. And uh, uh, when should it be removed? When you should bring uh, 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 fresher food there? Mm-hmm. And uh, this would allow also a better optimization of the shelf space and uh, at the end also of the uh, whole uh, like uh, inventory. Mm. What's the process for uh, taking... Uh, for for launching a startup, for taking it from the lab to the to Penovation and then beyond. Uh, Penovation is the is the uh, lab. Penovation uh, is the new space in the yeah. south of the University of Pennsylvania campus, uh, which really hosts uh, many uh, uh, companies which are commercializing ideas from the academic lab. Yeah. Uh, the process is uh, usually that. Uh, uh, you think that uh, some of these uh, ideas uh, can indeed uh, be realized in the near future and you can have a very good technology around them. Uh, and uh, uh, in legal terms, uh, there is some licensing of the technology to the uh, startup because uh, the intellectual property belongs to the university. This is exclusively licensed to a startup. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, then uh, uh, you have to build a very good team. I think the main way to do that is uh, by having uh, students starting the startup. Students yeah. can attract uh, uh, much more easier other students, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so attracting talent is uh, number one challenge. And I think number two, in terms of technology, is really uh, keeping it simple, not doing the technology with the motivation of writing a paper like we do in academia, mm. but uh, with the motivation of uh, really making it work in a specific environment. Okay. And uh, then... Uh, Obviously, you have to also sell this. Uh, this is uh, a completely different world, a completely different universe for us researchers. Right. <laughs> and uh, you need to have uh, good people who will promote this idea both for customers as also for fundraising. But of course, being at a, at a research institution that is part of a, a larger uh, university, you have access to all those people and you can build a, a good team. Uh, definitely, Penn uh, is a very good name, both in terms of uh, engineering and in business right. with the Wharton School. Right. And uh, there is uh, a lot of uh, uh, like talent mm-hmm. that we can attract also from outside right. uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. And it's also good, uh, you know, as, as robotics has become uh, more commercially viable, um, it's good that uh, that academia sort of t- uh, found a place there and, that, you know, students still know that they can, that they can uh, uh, gain business acumen, gain skills that can take them into the workforce, or they could pivot and go further into academia. And the option is still there for them. Right. Uh, both, uh, and uh, indeed, uh, uh, with uh, the rise of uh, AI, and robotics uh, these years, uh, uh, many PhD students and even faculty are moving mm-hmm. uh, to industry. Right. Uh, I still uh, recommend uh, students uh, to follow uh, graduate studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really recommend you to read, uh, for example, the blog of Andre Karpathy on uh, the famous from Deep Learning, right. uh, who is a very good entry why to do a PhD mm-hmm. uh, you can uh, work in industry any time of your life you want these days but uh, doing a PhD while you are out of undergraduate school uh, with all the motivation and energy you have it will give you the right way to address problems in a more foundational right. uh, uh, way and uh, it will definitely uh, make you think more abstractly. It will make you think more uh, uh, in a long-term uh, like vision. And uh, you will definitely learn to work on bigger projects rather than uh, uh, being in... A uh, like in a industry directly out of your undergraduate school, even if you are, uh, if you see the startups that are built from students directly out of the undergraduate schools, they are uh, startups with extremely smart ideas, 
but uh, not uh, the highest technology. Right. All the startups in AI and deep learning they have some PhDs on them. Of course. Yeah. You hear about when um, Google acquires a new a new uh, startup, that what what each PhD cost. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, so for a student who's interested in, in uh, academia and research, what advice would you give them? Right. Uh, uh, that's uh, what I really recommend uh, the uh, entering uh, PhD students uh, is uh, uh, to first uh, still take uh, graduate courses. They still have to learn a lot and uh, take even like uh, courses uh, which uh, are either in math or in probability uh, so that they understand better how things work. And uh, I really recommend them to work uh, on uh, more uh, like uh, fundamental problems rather than uh, build uh, uh, just uh, a system. You need to build a system to experiment, but you have to think about it as a physicist, that the system itself is not your final goal. Your final goal Mm -hmm. is to build the system so that you study it and see if it works or not, right. and when it doesn't work. When uh, my student come and says, uh, I'm so happy it works, I really always want to know when it doesn't work and explain it. Right, right. All right, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Kostas. Thank you very much. It was a very exciting conversation. And that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to find out more about Costa's work, there's further information about this episode on our website at robohub.org. Our next episode will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Grasp with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.